In California's fourth climate change assessment, the Sacramento Valley region, from Shasta all the way down to the Delta, is home to about 2.4 million people, 6% of the state total. And more than half of those people, 1.5 million of them, live in and around Sacramento, our state capital. In the north, where the Sacramento River begins, there are mountainous pine forests cross-cut by natural waterways. This is the ancestral land of the Wintu peoples, an umbrella that refers to several different ethnic groups with a shared language. The Wintu people who live in the area today, though, see a different landscape from the one their grandparents and great-grandparents grew up with. During the Great Depression, the federal government funded the building of a massive dam in this area, flooding thousands of acres, including about 90% of the remaining territory of the Winnemem Wintu. Today, this is the site of California's biggest reservoir, Shasta Lake, which feeds water into farms as far south as Bakersfield via the Central Valley Project, one of the state's massive water engineering projects. The Sacramento Valley region follows the water from the headwaters, then south, through the ancestral lands of many indigenous peoples, and then finally into Miwok lands at the Sacramento-San Joaquin River Delta. This episode explores the ways climate change is projected to affect day-to-day life for people living in the Sacramento Valley region in the coming decades. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm Shane Carter. I spoke with three young people living there in the Sacramento area. They told me about themselves, their hometown, and some of their thoughts about the future. They also shared experiences they've already had that hint at the climate future in this region. So let me introduce you. Uh, Hello, my name is Jason. Uh, I live in Sacramento, and I'm 17 years old. I would say that I'm a a scholar-athlete, I guess. Uh, I actually just graduated, but I ran uh, track and cross-country. When you leave your home, what do you see? What does the neighborhood look like? Both the natural environment around you and also the buildings and stuff. What does it look like? Uh, I'd say Sacramento is fairly uh, suburban. Uh, It's it's not like a small town, but it's also not like a huge city. There's, uh, you know, there's like, you know, city office buildings in in downtown. But outside of that, it's pretty, uh, pretty much like housing. And there's, I'd say there's a, there's a large amount of, uh, you know, like plants and uh, like trees and pretty much everywhere. There's, there's a large, you know, we used to be the city of trees was the, the tagline of Sacramento. So there used to be a water tower along the I-5 highway just south of Sacramento that read, welcome to Sacramento, city of trees. In 2017, the city caused some controversy when they painted over it with a new slogan, Welcome to Sacramento, America's Farm to Fork Capital. According to a 2017 study by researchers at MIT, 23.6% of the city is shaded by tree canopy. And that is a lot, the highest level of tree cover of any of the U.S. cities in the study, and higher than many cities around the world. This may seem like just a bit of trivia, but shaded surfaces, like a street or sidewalk underneath a tree, can be up to 45 degrees cooler, Fahrenheit that is, than unshaded surfaces right next to them. Urban tree cover is actually an important tool in our response to climate change. When you imagine the world of the future, when you think about your day-to-day life, what kinds of things do you wonder about or think about being different from now? As the future comes, we're going to have to change to more sustainable ways of living. And so I just, I uh, wonder about like how um, they're going to be implemented. When you say wonder about it, is that something that like is potentially exciting to you? Because you feel like it could be some really interesting stuff or is it something that you feel like nervous about or un- like you're worried about losing things that you like? No, I'm definitely more excited about it. Just, you know, technology as a whole is pretty interesting you know seeing how how things are going to change in like five ten years 15 years you know because how much it changed in the past 10 years 
My second guide to this area was a couple of years older than Jason, and if you listen to the second government episode, you may recognize him. My name is Juan Flores. I um, am from South Sacramento, California. Um, I am 19 years old, um, and I am currently attending UCLA. Juan is active in his community, working to get their voices heard by local government. I live in, so in South Sacramento, um, in my community, it's uh, very diverse. There's uh, a lot of cars. I live like right next to the freeway. So it's always like super, super loud, super busy. Um, I live in an area where it's not too safe. So it's, you don't really see a lot of people walking. Um, And like after sundown, there's no one outside. Like everyone knows you stay inside. Uh, and so, yeah, like, well, well, Center Park, I, I live like right next to Center Parkway and Mac Road, um, which is, I guess it's one of the most, um, it has one of the highest crime rates in Sacramento. So the way that I would describe it is very, um, I think everyone, <laughs> everyone knows their place here. Like we, we all, we all know to keep our distance, to keep our head down. We don't, we didn't see anything. We didn't hear anything. I, I would consider, I would define myself as a, as a revolutionary. Um, and I say that because, um, I went into college in a very, uh, with a purpose. My purpose was to learn, grow, and come back to my community to support and, um, implement the tools that I received my education. We are not approaching climate change with a blank slate. Just like the COVID pandemic, extreme weather events and other climate change impacts are going to mix and meld with our current privileges and challenges. In other episodes, I've mentioned the Cal Screen map, which shows how vulnerable different communities are to climate change impacts based on a combination of factors, including existing pollution, wealth, education levels, asthma rates, and a lot more. Juan's neighborhood is one of the most vulnerable in the state. It's a frontline community, meaning people in his neighborhood will feel the effects of climate change sooner and more intensely than many other people across California. Juan knows this, and it's part of why he's interested in public health. My third guide to this region was Ivana, and you'll hear the audio is a little muffled on our conversation. Sorry about that. We had to record over the phone while Ivana was outside. I grew up in Sacramento, California. Um, I'm attending Sonoma State University. In high school, Ivana was into a bunch of different activities. Um, I was in cooking club, garden club, chess club. That interest in food and gardening is directly related to her community. Ivana's neighborhood in Sacramento is a food desert. We don't really have, like, like a grocery store, I guess. What we did, we had food stores, but it just, like, closed down, like, last season. So I guess mm. now we have was like McDonald's and like Taco Bell and just junk food places, not really like a place to get vegetables and stuff like that. And when we spoke, she was thinking about turning the empty plots of land she sees around town into community gardens. And it gives jobs to people who want to work in the garden. It gives food to people who like, you know, can't buy vegetables like that. Like Juan, Ivana's questions and ideas about her own community have influenced her thoughts about her future. I don't know exactly the job I want to do, but I know that I want to be, like, mainly in environment. I've got the office, you know. So I don't really know, like, you know, presidential, mayorish, or governor. But, yeah, I want to be, like, in the type of office that have a, a focus on, like, the state environment. Sacramento, this place where Ivana, Juan, and Jason grew up, is projected to undergo some pretty significant changes over the next few decades due to climate change. Increases in average temperatures and more heat waves. Sea level rise affecting the Delta area. Longer periods of extreme drought, occasionally interrupted by intense storms. The changes to temperature and precipitation will have secondary effects too, like increasing the risk of wildfire and changing natural landscapes. Trees like the valley oak and blue oak may disappear from this region, for example. Many species of animals will either change where they live or go extinct. I'm going to focus on three climate change effects. Heat, changing precipitation, and wildfire. 
You'll hear from Jason, Juan, and Ivana about experiences they've already had with these kinds of natural events, plus climate scientists' projections for the future. We need to think about how these changes could affect our housing, our infrastructure, our health, our food, our bank accounts, how we move around. And the most important question is, how can communities respond right now? We can't stop climate change from happening. It's too late for that. But we can still influence how extreme those changes will be. And we can adapt. We can modify our infrastructure and our policies so that these extreme weather events intensified by climate change don't turn into disasters. Part one, heat. Heat is nothing new in Sacramento. How hot does it get there in the summer, in your experience? what What's the most memorable sort of heat wave that you can think of? I remember one time it was like, and it was like 115 for like a few days. And I remember that and it was just like, that was like ridiculous. So were you just inside the whole time or did you go out when it was like that? No. So that was, that, had, that was when I was younger. And so I was, I still ran track. So I was like, I remember like we went out for practice, but then like it got canceled like while we were there just because of its heat. In the past decade, Sacramento's high temperature has consistently climbed well over the 100-degree mark, 109 in 2017 and 2018, 112 in August of 2020, 113 in July of 2021. In June of this year, 2022, the city had eight straight days with temperatures over 100. But the highest official air temperature ever recorded in Sacramento was 114 degrees back in 1925. So was Jason wrong? Did he not experience a 115-degree day at track practice? Well, follow me down this rabbit hole for a minute. According to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, there is an official method to measuring air temperature, which of course makes sense if you want to compare temperature from one place or time to another. And here's how it's done. You put a thermometer inside a shelter, either a wooden box with slats for airflow, or a case that looks kind of like eight lampshades stacked on top of each other with space for airflow again. Either way, the shelter is white to reflect sunlight so it doesn't heat up. It also has a double roof just to make sure the sun can't heat up the inside of the box. Sometimes they even run a fan to blow air through it. And then the box is on top of a pole, or legs, elevated about five feet off the ground, so it's not picking up heat radiating up from below. It's not attached to the side of a building because you don't want the thermometer to pick up any heat that way, either. Now, let's get back to Jason's practice. The recorded air temperature, the official temperature, for the area was not 115. But what Jason was experiencing, with the sun beating down from above and heat radiating back up off the track, that was very likely a lot hotter. Definitely too hot for track practice. There's a difference between the official ambient air temperature in a region and our lived experience in different places. So keep that in mind when you hear these official temperature numbers. Average summer temperatures across the Sacramento Valley region are projected to increase 2.7 to 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on how much greenhouse gas we continue to emit. I talked about heat projections for the city of Sacramento with Nancy Freitas, my collaborator on this podcast. Nancy is a graduate student studying climate science at UC Berkeley. She listened to my interviews with young people, and then we discussed them. I brought my perspective from teaching history and social studies, and she brought a scientist's view and answered questions that came up. If you want to learn more about Nancy and her work, you should listen to the episode called What is Climate Change? Something that I thought was really interesting from the state assessment report for this region was that the number of extremely hot days in downtown Sacramento is expected to increase by 10 times within the century. and. We're, we're talking about going from four days to a month and a half of extreme heat. And, you know, we've already seen the effects of heat waves across the state and how detrimental that is to human life, infrastructure, um, wildfire threat. You know, there are myriad effects. So that, that number was pretty staggering to me. To clarify, in case you didn't get that, If we don't lower our greenhouse gas emissions, 
Climate scientists are projecting that Midtown Sacramento will have an average of 40 days per year when the temperature goes to 104 degrees or higher. Nancy and I were not the only ones taken aback by those numbers. Here is Jason. Putting it in those terms sounds uh, a lot crazier than like uh, I just don't I just don't get to get that that kind of like direct statements of of how how climate change can affect you know cities that are not on the coast and cities that are not really in like direct uh, danger of you know like hurricanes or of like the raising uh, sea levels. Now, back to my conversation with Nancy. And I think um, one of the interesting things about heat, too, is one day of heat, bad heat, can be bearable. It can be dangerous for sure, but it can be bearable. But it's multiple days of prolonged heat and nighttime temperatures that don't dip that really cause danger to humans. And so when we're talking about this many days of heat, you could kind of think about it as this prolonged potential heat wave. That's kind of scary. Yeah. Well, and you, when you were going through, I saw that you highlighted a particular passage. Do you want to read it? This passage um, is from the state assessment report for Sacramento Valley. It says, a single heat wave can levy a high toll on human health and emergency and healthcare systems. The 2006 California heat wave resulted in higher than normal daytime and nighttime temperatures for more than two weeks, resulting in an estimated 600 deaths. 16,000 emergency room visits, and 1,100 hospitalizations. The marginal damages of this single event were estimated at $5.4 billion. Such human and economic tolls of extreme heat are likely to increase in the future. I also noticed in the um, assessment them talking about the changes that this would cause for infrastructure, like roads buckling railroads, you know, like actual physical um, damage to infrastructure caused by increased extreme heat days. Definitely. And bridge infrastructure um, potentially buckling um, or expanding and contracting with increases in heat. And then also, of course, which we've talked about before, our electricity infrastructure, um, which becomes less efficient the hotter it gets. In July 2006, Sacramento experienced 14 straight days of temperatures over 95 degrees. And as Nancy quoted from the report, high temperatures can be deadly, especially high temperatures multiple days in a row. Heat waves also have longer-term negative health effects. Heat worsens air quality, which increases respiratory health problems, including asthma. And extreme heat can cause emotional stress, which worsens mental health. The projection for 40 days per year with temperatures over 104 degrees, what that really means is more of those deadly, costly heat waves like the one we saw in 2006. People in rural and urban areas are both endangered by heat, but in different ways. In rural areas of the Sacramento Valley, on average, people are more physically vulnerable to the effects of heat because the rural population is older and has less access to health care. And more people there are food insecure than in the cities. Cities, on the other hand, are hotter than suburban and rural areas. Afternoon temperatures can be 20 degrees warmer in the densest urban areas. This is called the heat island effect, and it happens partly because buildings and roads absorb heat from the sun and then radiate it back out into the cityscape. The machinery of cities also generates heat. Think of all the cars, trucks, and other vehicles, air conditioners, etc. But city neighborhoods aren't all equally hot. And apparently, um, low-income areas, which is like majority like black areas, mm-hmm. um, they're most likely, you know, have a chance of not surviving the um, the heat, you know, like 100 degree weather and stuff like that. If um, if you're a little older, you know. And so they actually, um, a good population of um, African-Americans have died because of the heat, you know. When you're in, like, a place that's kind of, like, low income, you know, like, you got hot streets, like, there's no, like, grass or anything like that. There's no, like, shade. And then you, like, you know, you're probably, like, in a low-income house, so you don't have, like, you probably just have fans, you know. The fans are really enough. There's no real AC. And so Mm -hmm. you don't really have nowhere 
cool to like be at unless you want to like, go to the store, I guess. But you can't sit in the store for hours, you know, to cool down. Places where the local government invested in building parks or planting trees are cooler than places with more pavement and less shade. And our history of segregated housing means that black and brown neighborhoods are often the ones that are hotter. Sacramento's hottest neighborhoods are seven degrees warmer than the city average. The simple reality is, you know those official air temperature measuring stations? The inside of those boxes is cooler and better ventilated than many of our homes and neighborhoods. Looking forward to the future, we can think about three categories of response to this projected heat. First, we can decrease the intensity of the heat by moving away from fossil fuels so we aren't emitting so much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere. Plus, we can use rural land differently to actually decrease the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. The Sacramento Valley Regional Report describes projects of the Rangeland Watershed Initiative that both improve agricultural production and store more carbon in the ground. Second, we can plan ahead for extreme heat so that there are well-known places people can go to cool down. I asked Juan if there was anything like that in his neighborhood. There's actually one park next to um, uh, a library that has like water and cool like splashing. So I think that that that's one of the closer um, things that people would go to and and like on a weekend or a, a hot afternoon to cool off and have the kids you know play in, play in the in the water. But other than that, I think it would be yeah mostly people stay inside. Children. Older people and pregnant women are particularly endangered by high heat. A splash pad is a fun solution for many kids, at least for part of the day. But what about at other times? And what about those other vulnerable populations? What if it's 110 degrees and you don't have air conditioning or can't afford to run the AC? Well, public buildings like libraries are often air-conditioned spaces, in part for that purpose. Some cities also have special cooling centers, air-conditioned spaces where people can go to escape the heat. I don't remember hearing too many things about that, of like cooling stations. Maybe there has been uh, cooling stations, but they honestly not accessible to my community um, because I have not heard too many things about those cooling stations for South Sacramento. Earlier in the COVID pandemic, many cities, including Sacramento, kept their cooling centers closed. But this summer, Sacramento opened three dedicated cooling centers for a few days in July during a heat wave. People struggling with heat at home had to decide which they thought was the greater threat to their health, exposure to heat or to COVID. These were spaces in existing city offices, the Department of Human Assistance Service Centers, to be specific. They included games, TV, snacks, water, places to charge phones and computers, which is good, but probably not a place where you want to hang out for 40 full days each year trying to avoid high temperatures. A cooling station is meant to be an emergency response, not a regular part of life. And that brings us to the third type of response, which is to take heat into account in our local planning and cool our cities by using different building techniques. The goal here is to reduce the heat island effect and create areas all over town that are naturally cool because of ventilation and shade. For example, cities can require buildings to be shaped and situated in ways that promote airflow. They can encourage or require building owners to paint rooftops white. They can plant and maintain more trees across the city. Right now, Sacramento is in the process of updating their general plan, which includes the goal of increasing tree canopy, among other changes. They'll publish the draft and take comments in fall of 2022. That plan will offer a pretty good idea of what the city is planning to do about increases in heat. Part 2. Changing Precipitation the Sacramento Valley region encompasses just about the whole watershed of the Sacramento River, including the hundreds of small streams that start as snowmelt in the mountains to the north and east of Sacramento, which eventually converge into larger waterways, then the Sacramento River, which pours out through the Delta, the Bay, and finally the Pacific Ocean. 
When it comes to water in this region, there are three important questions to ask. How much precipitation will fall? When will it fall? And will it fall as snow or rain? The how much question is a little complicated. Historically, California has always had a lot of variability in our precipitation when you look at it from one year to the next, as well as from one part of the state to another. That's why we have all that water infrastructure to store water and move it from wet parts of the state, like the northern part of the Sacramento Valley region, to dry parts, like Southern California. But to give you an example of the variability, in 2014, the statewide average for rainfall was about 12 inches. And in 2017, it was almost 42 inches. Climate modeling suggests that the average amount of precipitation in the region will stay about the same over the coming decades. Meaning, if you add up all the precipitation that falls each year for the next 50 years, it will be about the same as the total amount that fell over the previous 50 years. But warming climate means year-to-year variability is going to increase. And that gets us to the second question. When will the precipitation fall? Here in California, we get most of our water each year from just a handful of big storms. So one additional storm can make a huge difference in the amount of rain we get in a year. When we have a particularly wet year, like 2017, it's almost always because we had an atmospheric river storm. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, defines atmospheric rivers as, quote, long flowing regions of the atmosphere that carry water vapor through the sky. That kind of undersells what we're talking about here. An atmospheric river can carry more than two times as much water as the Amazon River. They produce particularly intense storms. Climate scientists project that over the coming decades, we'll have fewer wet years like 2017, but the ones we do have will be more extreme. They anticipate atmospheric rivers will increase in frequency and intensity, meaning we'll see more megastorms. But in between those wet years, we'll have longer, deeper droughts. And the third question, rain or snow? Well, we're already seeing a shift where precipitation that historically arrived as snow has been falling more and more often as rain. And as global temperatures warm, that trend is expected to continue. This increasing fluctuation is a real challenge for our state water system, which relies on precipitation arriving as snow that slowly, predictably melts over the warmer months. Right now, more than 52% of the electricity used in the Sacramento Valley region comes from hydropower, generated through the controlled release of water out of the giant reservoirs we've constructed. Huge storms and droughts both disrupt this kind of electricity production. River habitats will also be affected by the cycle of drought and flood. Scientists currently project that 82% of the region's fish species will go extinct by 2100, the effect of warmer rivers, lower water levels, and poor water quality. In the episodes about the San Joaquin Valley region, I talked a lot about the far-reaching effects of drought. Here, for the Sacramento Valley, I want to focus more on the flip side of the equation, floods. So to start, how do people in Sacramento already experience flooding in their day-to-day lives? Here are Jason and Juan. Do you have a favorite place in town? I live next to the American River, and so I like uh, to go like running and biking along the trail. So I guess that's that's my favorite place. Is it like a paved trail, or is it like a less? Uh, there's there's both. When I'm biking, I'm on the there's like a paved bike trail that goes all the way from like downtown off to city called Folsom. And then there's also the dirt trails with like hills and within like the, the trees and stuff that runs right along the river that I ride on. When it rains, um, I know it doesn't rain super often, but when you have a big storm, is there flooding or have you ever experienced a flood? Yeah. The the trail floods up. Um, like the water can come up over the, the bike trail, but there's a levee on the other between the housing and the the bike trail and the and the running trails so um but like i've seen i've seen it flood up over over the bike trail and that's all been underwater before so um floods no but funny that you bring that up the closest thing we've had to a flood is um no maintenance 
streets to street cleaning. So the uh, sewage holes on the street get clogged with trash and so much debris build up that like streets literally become covered in like a foot of water when we do have like heavy rains. I remember like a few years that that was the case and literally some neighbor, some like community residents had to go out themselves and start like moving the trash out of the gutters to, or not gutters. Clean the drains. Mm -hmm, To clean the drains. This sounds frustrating, having a local intersection repeatedly flood or losing access to your favorite biking trail. Definitely a decline in quality of life, especially if it happens repeatedly, but not necessarily worrying, right? I asked Nancy to help me understand why the state climate change assessment for the region had so many mentions of flood risk. It starts with the natural geography of this place. So the Central Valley is a valley. Um, which means that it has mountains on either side of it. And so because especially the Sierra Nevadas flank one side of the Central Valley, it receives a huge amount of runoff, seasonal runoff from the Sierras due to precipitation and snow melt. And a lot of that has collected over thousands of years in the Central Valley um, in the form of wetlands and rivers and riparian areas. And so an analogy that I read about was that the Central Valley has kind of been like a bathtub for thousands of years that fills up and drains a little bit, but fills up and drains, but generally is a pretty, was a pretty moist environment for plants and animals to live and grow in and humans. Keeping with the analogy, the Delta, just 50 miles south of Sacramento, is the bathtub drain. All the water draining out of the Central Valley passes through there. That's the context. Now, before I tell you what that means for the future, let me tell you a story about a megastorm, one that was almost certainly caused by an unusually intense atmospheric river. It turns out history has some helpful lessons for us as we try to imagine our climate future. November 1861. The U.S. Civil War had been going on for seven months, and California was hit with an unusually strong winter storm. And then, just weeks later, the temperature rose, melting snow that had just fallen in the mountains. Christmas Eve, 1861. It started raining again. And it basically did not stop for 43 days. The entire Central Valley flooded, both the Sacramento River Valley and the San Joaquin Valley. The water stretched 300 miles from north to south, 20 miles east to west, and up to 30 feet deep, enough to bury buildings and telegraph poles. Thousands of people died, plus 25% of the state's cattle. California had only become a state in 1850, just 12 years before the Great Flood. And when the flood hit, there were about 380,000 people living in the state. Around 30,000 indigenous people, survivors of disease and genocide, and 350,000 settlers. The flood came as a shock to the settlers, but at least some of the indigenous Californians understood what was happening and left the flood zone before the water rose. On January 11, 1862, an article in the Nevada City Democrat newspaper read, and I'm quoting here, We are informed that the Indians living in the vicinity of Marysville left their abodes a week ago or more for the foothills, predicting an unprecedented overflow. They told the whites that the water would be higher than it has been for 30 years, and pointed high up on the trees and houses where it would come. The Valley Indians have traditions that the water occasionally rises 15 or 20 feet higher than it has been at any time since the country was settled by whites. And as they live in the open air and watch closely all the weather indications, it is not improbable that they may have better means than the whites of anticipating a great storm. 
That's one way of saying it. Or, to put it more accurately, some indigenous residents had preserved accounts told to them by their parents and grandparents about similar floods that happened in the past. Weeks later, when the rain stopped, the water remained. It didn't fully recede until the summer in some places. Downtown Sacramento, the state capital, remained underwater for three months of 1862. And when the city was finally rebuilt, planners raised the whole downtown at least 10 feet above where it had originally been. When people moved into the Central Valley and into the Sacramento Valley area and started building a lot of infrastructure, both residential infrastructure, commercial infrastructure, and then agriculture, a lot of those areas were both drained and or had to be sectioned off from the cities so that they didn't pose a huge flood risk. So suddenly, humans have started building huge amounts of infrastructure in a traditional wetland area. And then in order to deal with that, they've had to divert huge amounts of water around the cities in order to continue maintaining infrastructure and agriculture. And so that that explains why it's an area that's cross-cut by so many levees. It's like part of that bigger California water management system. Exactly. Yeah. And it's this big network of dams and reservoirs of rivers and floodplains that are controlled by levees and bypasses um, to redirect that water and weirs that allow huge amounts of water to flow into those bypasses. So it's this really intricate network of engineering that prevents water from being where water used to be so that humans can exist in that space with a lot of infrastructure and a lot of agriculture. Much of that water engineering infrastructure was built between about 1920 and 1960. And without it, California would be a very different place today. It didn't stop flooding in the Sacramento Valley region. People living there experienced five pretty significant floods between 1960 and 2000. But none of them were as big as the Great Flood of 1862. Most Californians believe that flood had been a freak event, the type of storm that would only happen once every 500 or even 1,000 years. But research in the last decade shows that California has actually experienced events like the 1862 Great Flood about once every 200 years. Now, back to my conversation with Nancy. So, fast forward to now and the coming century, and what's the problem? Yeah, so the problem now is we know that precipitation patterns are going to be changing with climate change. and we're expecting to see more intense precipitation events, so more intense rainfall that could be running down into the Central Valley, into the Sacramento Valley. So that's coming from the mountainous regions. At the same time, sea level rise is expected for the region through the San Francisco Bay and into the Delta area, which means that the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta is going to potentially be exposed to much higher water levels. And then because those precipitation events might be so high, the dams might have to be releasing more water down the rivers. Mm, at the same time? It, it could be at the same time, right? And so we're seeing potential flood risk happening from all areas around the Sacramento Valley. Got it. And so then that's why I saw that you noted that 40% of the Sacramento Valley residents live in a 500-year floodplain. Yeah. So 1 million people, which is a huge number of people, live in areas that are at direct risk of major flood events. Climate change is projected to increase the intensity of regular winter storms, as well as those atmospheric river storms. And both those things lead to greater potential for floods in the Sacramento Valley region. As you can imagine, this means endangered lives, plus damage to infrastructure, to transit, to electricity generation, and, of course, people's homes and businesses. And just like with heat, some people will be more vulnerable to the effects of flooding than others. People who live in floodplains won't be able to find affordable flood insurance. People in neighborhoods that are under-maintained by their local government will feel greater effects. Smaller towns will be particularly vulnerable because they have fewer resources to rebuild after a flood than big cities do. 
Just like with heat, there are three categories of response related to flood. First, of course, is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. The more we warm our planet, the more we intensify the heat waves, the droughts, and the storms we'll experience. Second, we need to reduce the chance that floods can do lasting, costly damage. There are lots of ways to do this. Supporting natural systems like wetlands, not building new housing in floodplains, doing basic maintenance on storm drain systems and improving stormwater capture in cities, updating levees, bypasses, reservoirs, the big infrastructure. The regional report for the Sacramento Valley pointed to the Lower Elkhorn Basin Levee Setback Project, that's a mouthful, as a good example of this type of work, and I've included a couple of links on the webpage if you want to see what that looks like. And third, we have to prepare for emergencies, including a massive flood along the lines of the 1862 Great Flood. Every city and county in California already plans for emergencies like earthquakes, floods, and fires, but climate change increases the risk of extreme weather events. In 2011, the U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS, convened a group of scientists to model what would happen if an intense storm system soaked California for 23 days. The project was called Arc Storm, which is not at all disturbing, and in the summary of their results, the authors said, quote, megastorms are California's other big one, meaning it would be just as damaging as a massive earthquake. The goal of the project was not just to terrify us, although I have to say their summary video does a pretty good job of that. The point was to predict in detail the kinds of damage we can expect so that federal, state, and local governments can improve their preparation for emergencies. Part 3. Wildfire Wildfire is one of the most visible signs of climate change in California. 18 of the 20 biggest fires in California history have happened since the year 2000. Nine of them have been in just the past three years. All the young people I interviewed for this podcast had some experience with fire, from evacuating their homes, to getting out of the path of fire, to experiencing the effects of smoke. Juan, Jason, and Ivana were no different. Here's Jason. Actually, I remember last year that specifically affected school. Like, school got canceled, um, like, my junior year for, like, a whole week right before Thanksgiving because of the air quality, because smoke from fires were coming, coming through. It might be hard to remember after all the disruption from COVID, but during the few years before the pandemic, people disagreed about if and when schools should be closed because of smoke. Ivana didn't agree with her school's decision. It was smoke, like, everywhere. We had to stay inside, but our school actually didn't let us out, like, so we didn't have, um, you know, we didn't have, like, a closed school day until, like, the last minute, basically, until, like, the Friday. So we had to be there, like, the whole week, and then the Friday of, we uh, we just got the day off. So, like, we only had basically, like, two days off after, like, a whole week full of just smoke. Juan felt the same. But that smoke was affecting Sacramento, um, and that is when a bunch of Sacramento district, school district, and then the Elk Grove Unified School District um, closed schools. But one of the interesting situations was that Elk Grove Unified School District was one of the last school districts to close. Um, Like there was other schools that closed before my school and everyone was ordered to stay home because air quality was super low, super bad. Um, but my school, we still had to be there in person. Um, and we're not a close to school. We don't have, we're not an indoor school. So students were, would have to be walking from class to class every um, few hours. Um, and we didn't really have like a secure, a big enough cafeteria one um, for every, for all students. Um, so students had to go into classrooms and students had to, you know, wear masks to protect themselves, those who had breathing problems or other health-related issues. But that was one of the, I guess, one of the biggest impacts of the natural disasters that have affected me. Now, clearly, fire has the greatest impact on people in the place where it happens. 
The smoke that clothed Jason, Ivana, and Juan's schools probably came from the campfire, which killed 85 people and burned over 18,000 buildings in the town of Paradise in November 2018. Paradise is 90 miles north of Sacramento, also in the Sacramento Valley region. Fire affects everything, the mental, physical, and economic health of individual people, local businesses, roads and bridges, the electrical system, access to clean water, the list goes on. But I also don't want to understate the effects of wildfire smoke, which is more than burned trees. As it moves through agricultural and residential land, Fire burns plastics, pesticides, paint, all kinds of toxic materials that then get breathed in by people in the path of the smoke. People with asthma and other respiratory illnesses are immediately affected by the smoke. Others may not realize the health effects. Ivana noticed families carrying on with kids' birthday parties outside when Sacramento was blanketed in smoke. People were still like ordering jumpers for like, their party or whatever. Some of my people were still, like, you know, going outside and actually jumping on the jumpers during the smoke. And I'm like, are you guys serious? That's just bringing more air into your lungs. So I feel like people weren't really, like, they don't know the effects of it. And I feel like that's the news of all, they didn't, they didn't tell you the true effects of breathing that smoke constantly, you know? Wildfire risk is increased by a complex mix of factors, including higher temperatures, drought, and wind. Using projections for temperature and precipitation changes, climate scientists have suggested that the area at risk for wildfire, places where a spark could turn into a wildfire in California, that area is projected to increase by up to 300% by 2100. In other words, three times as much land as right now. But we can do a lot to decrease the risks and effects of wildfire. The first thing is forest management. California is trying to recover from 100 years of fire suppression policy, which led to our forests being overgrown and filled with combustible fuel. In the past couple of years, the state has increased its wildfire prevention budget a lot. The regional report suggests using that funding to work toward healthy forests, meaning with fewer, bigger trees and also healthy grasslands. In other words, it's a holistic approach. Healthy ecosystems can store more carbon, which helps reduce global temperatures, and those areas are less susceptible to megafires. We can also make different choices about housing. Building homes out into wildland areas increases the risk of fire. Residents pull water from streams and underground sources, which dries out land, especially when coupled with drought. Electrical lines that bring power to new homes are also a fire risk, especially during hot, windy weather. People who already live in these areas can do a lot to protect their homes from fire, but it can be expensive. Which is why, in 2022, the state began running a pilot program to give grants to vulnerable, low-income residents in three counties so they can pay to harden their homes against fire. So, heat changing precipitation, and wildfire. In the coming decades, these climate change impacts, and a lot of others, will affect the health and welfare of people living across the Sacramento Valley region. I want to wrap up with a bit more from the young people I interviewed. How do they think about this future? I kind of get, like, confused and like looky like mad I guess because I'm like it's so easy to change it's like in everyone's faces you know how to change it and then kind of like oh we're not gonna do that what we're gonna do is just make it worse or like just say it's not real and I'm like it's clearly there in your faces I'm like you're gonna avoid the problem until when you know it can be changed so fast The media and stuff like that portrays like like actual citizens are the like the main reason of climate change. But I personally think it's like big corporations like Amazon and like you know Coca Cola and like like the big like gas companies stuff like that. I feel like they are like the like ninety five percent of the contributors, and they kind of like blame us. That's my that's what my belief is. But then again, we do kind of like pollute and we do kind of you know don't recycle. We do other stuff too. So yeah. We are the primary group, but
It's hard to know how to think about this individual responsibility, how to push for changes in industry, and especially how to talk about what it will mean for our future if we act too slowly or not enough. I asked Juan, who engages his community in local politics, how does he get people interested in these issues? Do you ever discuss just the issue of climate change with people, or is it always connected to issues of justice? I think it's, I always orientate those conversations about environment and the built environment through conversations of health justice, of health equity. How do I explain? So like, I think climate climate change is such a distant topic in that we're only talking about preserving forest and preserving, you know, these ice caps and, you know, all of that. But we're not talking about our local community our, um, and how we're developing and, and how we're affected by um, climate change. And so the way that I make it personable and a lot more palatable um, is talking about health and how, like, if you don't have access to healthy fruits and vegetables, if there's not, you know, tree canopy, if there's not protected sidewalks or protected um, bike lanes, then th- I guess that's how I, that environmental justice and environmental aspect of health, that's how I make it more relatable in that we're talking, the, the whole conversation is geared towards health and health outcomes. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about climate change in the Sacramento Valley region, check out the Future Imperfect resources at calgloballed.org. You'll find links about each of the topics mentioned in this episode. The next episode will focus on the North Coast region, and that will be the last regional episode in the series. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton.